I'm Paige Waterhouse. And I'm Nabil Rosa. And this is season three of On Record. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Record. So we're sitting here in WTJU studio uh, with masks on, plexiglass between us. Disinfectant. Lots of disinfectant. We're staying safe. We hope you are too. Please stay safe. On this episode of On Record, we're going to be talking about the inequalities in the COVID-19 pandemic. During this episode, we talked to Professor China Schurz in the Department of Anthropology about these issues. This was recorded a while ago, so it includes some predictions, but we are now seeing actual results of this problem. We recorded this interview in May when we were at about 1.3 million cases and 80,000 deaths in the U.S. At the time of recording, there are over 6.8 million coronavirus cases in the U.S. and approximately 199,000 deaths. As data continues to be revealed, overwhelming statistics show that Black and Latinx people have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. As reported in a July article from the New York Times, Black and Latinx people are three times more likely to be infected by the coronavirus, as well as two times more likely to die nationwide. This is a problem that crosses state lines and goes from rural to urban communities, but there are still gaps in the data. Taking a closer look at the data sets comparing Black and Latinx populations in Virginia, there is a drastic disparity. Data in May on Fairfax County, Virginia, found that Latinx residents were four times more likely to test positive than white residents. So the question is obviously, why do these disparities exist? The Mayo Clinic has highlighted, quote, underlying health conditions, dense living conditions, and employment in the service industry, end quote, as factors for why these racial disparities exist. For example, having certain conditions such as type 2 diabetes increases your risk of severe illness with COVID-19, and conditions such as these are more prevalent in African-American communities. Professor Schurz mentions this in her interview later, but it's important to realize that these disparities in underlying conditions are not because of any inherent biological differences between races, but rather because of systemic inequality. The Brookings Institute has reported, quote, In every age category, black people are dying from COVID at roughly the same rate as white people more than a decade older, end quote. Overall, it is important to consider how past injustices to African Americans and other minorities have contributed to a diminished quality of health, not just at the time of those injustices, but generations into the future as well. Systemic racism has always contributed to poor health outcomes in minority communities, but now we are seeing this in a new way in the COVID pandemic. 43% of Black and Latinx workers are employed in jobs where working remotely is mostly not a possibility, such as service industries, grocery stores, and warehouses. Minority communities are also more likely to live in densely populated housing situations. According to the American Housing Survey, Latinx people are two times more likely to live in housing that is less than 500 square feet per person. This makes social distancing and quarantine guidelines difficult, if not impossible, to follow. And we can't understand the full extent of this problem because of the gaps in government data on coronavirus cases grouped by race and ethnicity. CDC officials claim that more in-depth descriptions of the people who test positive is up to local authorities and their efforts. However, local authorities explain that they are so overwhelmed with the sheer number of cases and scarce resources that reporting more detailed data has been out of reach. These gaps in data need to be filled in order to understand the true extent of the issue. Let's look more specifically at the Charlottesville community. Currently, there are 3,222 cases reported and 54 deaths in the Thomas Jefferson Health District, which includes Albemarle County and Charlottesville City. 
Virginia is currently in phase three of reopening, but both the Charlottesville City Council and the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors developed new rules and restrictions to deal with the rise in cases and in preparation for students' return to grounds. These restrictions include 50% capacity indoor dining, mandated face masks in public places, and no gatherings exceeding 50 people. But many Virginia residents think that these may not be enough to convince people to be compliant. One Charlottesville resident told NBC29, quote, As we walk through this beautiful area here, some people have masks, some people do not, end quote. To talk more about the inequities in the COVID-19 pandemic, I spoke to Professor China Schurz, a medical anthropologist at the university. My name is China Schurz, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology. I'm a medical anthropologist and focus my work on um, health, illness, disease, and, and healing. Sure. So for um, those who might be unfamiliar with the field, what um, is medical anthropology and what um, does a medical anthropologist do on like a day-to-day basis? Well, medical anthropology is a branch of anthropology that focuses on questions of health and illness and tries to understand how social, cultural, economic, and political factors impact people's health and to try to use the tools of anthropology, in some cases, to try to make a practical difference in those issues. So initial data is showing that African Americans are both being infected with and dying from COVID-19 at a much higher rate than white Americans. It's obviously a complicated issue, but could you speak about some of the underlying causes here? Um, So that's a tremendously important question, Nabil, and um, difficult to say exactly how, how bad the disparities are given problems in sort of the limited testing infrastructure that's happening in the U.S. right now. But uh, based on a a current study from Johns Hopkins University looking at the infection and death rates in predominantly black counties and predominantly white counties in the United States, they found that the infection rate is three times higher in predominantly African-American counties than in predominantly white counties. And the death rate is six times higher in predominantly African-American counties than predominantly white counties. So um, disparities are huge. And trying to understand why this is, is a really important question and one that, that seems to have sort of multiple strands at play. And one of those strands is trying to understand how it is that underlying health conditions play a role in, how, in the severity of COVID-19 infections. And as we try to think about that, we can think about the, high, the much higher rates of things like high blood pressure, heart failure, asthma, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, HIV, in African-American communities in the United States. What a medical anthropologist like myself would focus on there is trying to understand how these health conditions are linked to forms of racism and other social determinants of health that lead members of African-American communities to having higher rates of these problems. So thinking about how it is that one's socioeconomic status influences one's access to healthy, nutritious food and places to exercise, how different kinds of working conditions impact these, and, and wanting to think about that over the long Um, historical durée in the United States rather than sort of looking at how race per se would impact these health conditions, wanting to look at the effects of chronic 
racism across generations. In addition to thinking about the harms of comorbidities themselves, we also have to think about how patients are being triaged and the fact that these comorbidities are, are something that is used to suggest that perhaps a patient should be less likely to receive sort of the most sort of intensive forms of care in hospitals can also be sort of a compounding factor could be leading to higher death rates for African-American people in the United States. We also have to think about what it, what it would mean to be somebody who's living in um, a community where people are living with higher housing densities, um, perhaps living in larger intergenerational families, and the challenges that presents to this idea of self-isolation or, or self-quarantine, um, both in terms of, you know, distancing oneself from, you know, other people in the community, but also if you have somebody who's infected within a family and they are still living in that house, the, the difficulties of trying to isolate that person become really extreme. And we also have to think about how it is that that race and class influence how likely it is to either be an essential worker, perhaps working in a grocery store or in a hospital setting, um, or being likely to live with an essential worker and thus increasing one's exposure to the, the virus if it, if it comes into the house in that way. I think there's a lot that's being made visible um, by this epidemic. And you know that's something that I've talked a lot about with my colleague, Aidan Seal Feldman, who also teaches in the department and all the things that are becoming visible. And I think the kinds of things that we're talking about right now, about the way that these kind of, in the words of somebody like Elizabeth Povinelli, these kind of chronic cruddy comorbidities are really becoming emergencies in, and sort of visible in this moment of crisis. And one might hope that that kind of visibility would then lead us to address those issues with greater intensity following sort of the end of the crisis moment. I think I thought like in line um, with one of my colleagues, Carla Kuduf, who wrote a book called The Pandemic Perhaps about pandemic preparedness, you know, his concern, and I, it's a concern that I share, is that given the severe economic problems that are going to result from the form of intervention that we've ended up taking in this case, that there may not be the kinds of financial resources available to actually address those structural problems in the way that we would want to have those addressed. And instead, we might see actually increases in precisely the forms of austerity and the defunding of public services that have caused these disparities to appear in the first place. To your knowledge, this data, these disparities seem to be not necessarily genetic biological differences, but um, results of man-made structures. There are enough pretty obvious man-made structures at play here that those would be the ones that I would point to first. There, I mean, it's possible that at some point there might be some sort of genetic uh, testing and, and whatnot that, that would show one thing over another, but I think um, thinking about the causes of these comorbidities and certainly um, the factors that would place someone at obvious increased risk of infection over another, you know, who the data on sort of who started staying home earlier was sort of clearly played out in relation to class. Just thinking about the kinds of assumptions that are being made about people's ability to stay home, their ability to distance themselves from family members and friends, their abilities to 
you know, who's out, who's out getting people's food and bringing it to them and who's staying in their house right now are just, it seems quite clear that, that the disparities are coming about because of not intentional necessarily, but, but man-made forces and, and forces that extend back for hundreds of years. So you spoke a lot about the structural issues at play here. I know there's been some research and some evidence that racism can actually be an independent factor in poor health outcomes. Could you, um, yeah, I'm talking about like the studies with low um, birth weight infants, et cetera. Do you think that that sort or those sort of issues are also at play here? And could you just talk a little bit about that? It's totally possible that the chronic stress um, faced by people who are forced to endure chronic acts of, of racial prejudice could be its own independent factor here. Um, I think especially as we think about uh, maybe perhaps the impact of stress on something like high blood pressure, I think we're going to need to, there's going to need to be more work on that to know for sure in this case what those linkages might be. But I think tr one of the things that I would urge you to do in thinking about that question is to not separate race and socioeconomic status as, you know, trying to kind of think about those things together. I know that the low birth weight baby study is, you know, really a classic place to think about how race becomes its own independent variable, but we also have to think about the forms of racism that lead people into positions where they're living in crowded housing with limited resources and those things as also being outcomes of, of racism in many cases. So I know we've kind of been talking about this without necessarily mentioning, mentioning the word, but for those who might not be familiar, could you explain the idea of structural violence and kind of how it relates to this conversation? Yeah, so structural violence is a term that is often used by medical anthropologists to talk about the sort of historical and contemporary social structures, beliefs, and practices that put any given person or group at a greater risk for suffering violence, illness, debility, and death. So, and we want to think, um, in the words of Paul Farmer, we want to think historically deep and geographically broad as we try to understand the forms of structural violence that might put a given person at risk. So, in thinking about this, though, it's tricky because these are often forms of violence that are invisible, they're normalized, they're reinforced by institutions, and they're often not the result of malicious intent. This is not the kind of violence that somebody is, is going about intentionally, or even that they, they, they might even be arguing that, oh, you know, this makes sense, or this is, you know, this is a good policy, this is a fair policy, you know, people get paid less, that, you know, they're, they're selling their labor on an open market, and this is, this is how this worked out. And these kinds of arguments can often involve various forms of victim blaming that, that seek to sort of justify why things are the way that they are. But these are really important forms of violence to understand as we try to look at why it is that certain people are more likely to become sick and, and to have more serious illnesses and even death come about, come about as a result of those illnesses. So these kinds of disparities in what could be considered a natural disaster or a you know kind of universal hardship show up repeatedly. How um, do you think we can start to address these issues? And quite frankly, are you hopeful that we will? 
I think that, you know, I think that there are, there are steps that we can take. And I think that trying to think about, if we're thinking about health problems, we need to really step back from the sort of immediacy of the health problem itself to think about what are, what do our housing policies look like? What do our education policies look like? What do our, and I think here, especially this um, has become visible, what do our, what do our labor policies look like? To, to be thinking very carefully about those, I think is a, is a really important place to start. I think thinking about policing, thinking about all of those forms of, of structural racism that figure into those kinds of spaces are, are important. Now, how do we, how do we solve those? I think that's a question that, you know, we need to be talking with colleagues in a variety of different fields to try to think about how do we come up with, you know, better policies in all of those areas. But if we're going to solve these kinds of health issues, it's going to take that kind of multi-pronged approach. What are some of the unanticipated adverse effects of the quarantine? Are these effects also disproportionately hitting some groups more than others? Yeah, so I think that, you know, these are, these are many, and these are actually the things that worry me most in, in lots of ways. But so one thing which we've already talked about a bit is the, way, the ways in which who it is that's able to self-quarantine or, or able to social distance or do this kind of stay-at-home lockdown, who, who's able to do that and who's not, is going to further divide divisions along lines of race and class. We might also want to think about how it is that this moment and our response to it will continue to exacerbate the social determinants that have produced the other comorbidities to begin with. So thinking about who it is that's going to be losing their, losing their jobs right now and the deepening inequalities that will come about as a result of that. Thinking about, as we talked about earlier, the broader economic problems and the difficulties that that will create for actually implementing the sort of reforms that we might want to see that would make the world um, a more equal and a, and a healthier place, but and instead seeing new forms of austerity that might make those reforms difficult. So cuts to public health system, cuts to hospitals, cuts to schools, cuts to various kinds of environmental reforms and, and the concerns that that raises. So when thinking about these issues, how do you think it'll affect the Charlottesville community? And what are you seeing as far as, you know, how much you can see in the Charlottesville community right now of how this pandemic is both affecting it directly and as we talk about these wider issues? Charlottesville depends so much on the university and on the health system as sort of drivers of the local economy and also on tourism and restaurants and things like that. So I think as the university and the health system are financially impacted by the crisis, I think, you know, trying to think about how that's going to play out long term in the area um, will, will be something that, that we need to wait and see. I think also the, you know, sort of restaurant and tourism industries, the ways that those, that those will be weathered, thinking about the, foreign, the same kinds of questions of widening inequality that we talked about earlier will likely play out here as they are in other places. And I think we all need to be mindful of that in as best ways we can and think about where it is that we have a capacity to influence sort of larger structural levers in terms of what gets rebuilt and what it looks like. And then to think about the choices that we make in our everyday lives, um, no matter who we are, 
and what kind of world it is that we want to try to participate in rebuilding. We really appreciate Professor Schurz speaking to us and for helping bring attention to this issue. University administration, as well as the larger Charlottesville community, are concerned at the potential implications and risks of students moving back to grounds. Although UVA students and many local businesses expressed excitement at the prospect of students' return to grounds, Charlottesville Mayor Walker expressed concern, saying, quote, It's a recipe for disaster. It's going to leave us all in the lurch in August when they come and in November when they leave and will be left cleaning up the fallout from that decision, end quote. The majority of the university's 25,000 graduate and undergraduate students are back on grounds. It is important to see how the Charlottesville community is affected, and additionally, how these inequalities that we discussed in this episode will have lasting impacts on the community and nationwide. On Record is written by Will Bird, Neela Connaughton, and Peyton Guthrie. The show is produced by Grace Fluharty and Ann Williams. Our editor is Nabil Raza. Tune in next week to meet our new team members for this season. Thanks for listening. This has been On Record.